0: But when somebody kills somebody, um, that really shows the kills their parent or caretaker. That shows that how serious the problem can become. While these children fear their parents, they also it's still their parents and they love them and. Um, that's the thing, no matter what their sentence is, that they have to live with, their, with the rest of their life. People know these kids are not evil.
1: Welcome to Parallel Justice. I'm Renee Williams, the Executive Director of the National Center for Victims of Crime, and your host for this series. Sometimes the criminal justice system fails to obtain justice for victims. This can occur when prosecutions end in acquittal or if charges are not filed at all. Even following a conviction, victims of crime can be left with devastating damages. So what then is civil justice? Well, crime victims can file civil lawsuits against offenders and other responsible parties, regardless of the outcome of the criminal prosecution, or even if there was no prosecution at all. Though money awarded in civil lawsuits can never fully compensate a victim for the trauma of victimization, it can be a valuable resource to help victims of crime rebuild their lives, and it is a powerful incentive to hold institutions, landlords, businessmen, and employers accountable. In this series, we will look at civil justice sought for criminal acts and bring together diverse perspectives to tackle complex questions of accountability, justice, and healing. Parallel Justice is brought to you by the National Crime Victim Bar Association, which is a program of the National Center for Victims of Crime. More information about the National Center and the National Crime Victim Bar Association is available at victimsofcrime.org. Please be advised that some of the topics we discuss may be disturbing, and these are intended for adult audiences only. Some of these topics may also be triggering. We encourage you to practice good self-care and seek support. Confidential, compassionate support is available via call, text, or chat at victimconnect.org. The views expressed in the following podcast are those of our guests who are experts in these areas. These opinions are invaluable. However, they do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Center for Victims of Crime. We acknowledge that some of these views may be controversial. However, our goal in these discussions is to raise awareness of victims' rights and the options available to them please enjoy the podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Parallel Justice. Today with us, we have Paul Monis. Paul, welcome. We're so happy to have you on today. Um, I want to start with the basics. Who are you? Can you introduce yourself to us? And how would you describe what you do?
0: Sure. Uh, my name is Paul Monis. I uh, represent now victims of sexual abuse uh, all around the country against institutions like schools and churches. But my, I've been practicing law now for about 40, a little more than 42 years. And um, for the first 25 years of my uh, career or so, well, really my whole career, I specialize in representing children. I, My first job was in uh, West Virginia back in the late 1970s, early 80s, really, really early 80s, where I worked as a uh, Ombudsman in uh, reform schools and county jails representing teenagers. And it was there I became interested in the whole issue of why kids commit uh, offenses. And I had a case of a little girl who uh, was in jail for possession of a stolen weapon. and um, I had interview interviewing her in her cell, and she said to me, the reason she was arrested was that, uh, her stepfather, can't remember now, her dad, um, who had been estranged from the family came uh, over to the family house, and she woke up with him trying to stick his erect penis in her mouth, and she got a gun and was going to kill him, but then she was uh, arrested, um, and that led me into an area that I became sort of the, I think I've been told either the not just the nation's uh, expert in this but probably one of the main people in in, in the in the universe who specializes in uh, kids who killed their parents
1: and and this is a certain type of of homicide which we call parricide, correct right it's
0: parasite made up of matricide and patricide matricide and patricide are age old um uh, crimes we know that goes back to biblical times uh One of the Ten Commandments is honor thy father and mother and and that's inextricably tied to the respect that children are supposed to have for their parents. And in fact, when I first got involved in this area um, around 1980, 81, there was very little understanding of why kids, um, uh, teenagers killed their parents. I had done several um, homicide defenses involving battered women who killed their husbands or boyfriends. But the understanding of why kids did it was very different because kids um, were supposed to respect their parents, kids were supposed to um, obey, uh, kids were not supposed to question. And when a kid uh, committed a patricide or matricide, it was always a big surprise, you, you know, it voiced as a big surprise to the neighborhood. This was always such a good family, etc. But just backing up for a second, so I did this work through probably the late 1990s. uh, And then I got a case involving a colleague of mine in New York, uh, Michael Dowd called me and told me he had a case involving a kid who had been sexually molested by a uh, ex nun turned parochial school principal in the Bronx. And this is 90, this is before Boston, it's like 95 or so. And uh, he said, you've done all this work on people abused who killed, let's just maybe we can do this case together of a kid who was abused in a church. And that led me to the kind of work I presently do, but I still do from time to time, um, uh, homicides uh, involving teenagers. So anyway, so that's it. And and then my work over the years, I first became very fascinated by the relationship between abuse and killing parents. And I wrote a, a, I couldn't find any lawyer magazine or lawyer journal that was even interested in it so i published it in a treat in a book uh by a harvard uh psychiatrist uh, named a uh, harvard pediatrician named eli Newberger, and um that was about the relationship between patris parasite and child abuse and then i developed an intellectual interest in it and uh, later on in 91 published a book called when a child kills which was put out by uh, pocketbooks, and um, Simon and Schuster.
1: And, and I do want you know, to talk about that book in a second, but but you've defended or acted as a consultant on more than 200 of these cases. or Way more than that. Yep. Way more than that. So I want to ask you just to kind of set the scene for yeah. our listeners, sure. what are some of the common themes you see and the commonalities in all sure. of these cases? Sure.
0: So just like a national homicide statistic, 75% of the cases of patri- parasite are boys who kill their dads. Um, 15% are boys who kill their mothers. And that's about 90% of the patris- parasites. Around seven, 8% are girls who kill their dads. And then the, the rarest one, and sometimes there's none in any year of a girls who kill their mothers. And that mirrors national homicide statistics in terms of homicides uh, coming out of the FBI Uniform Crime Report, which has been around for. Oh, more than 40 years now. And um, so the most common case I've seen <clears throat> are boys who kill their dads. Basically, the boys who kill their dads have two hallmarks to them. Number one, the boys have experienced extreme, dramatic, chronic, physical abuse, sometimes sexual abuse, mostly physical abuse they also typically witness their mothers being physically abused by their fathers. And with with that, that was an interesting thing that I observed over the years because it ended up that where you had this um, domestic violence arm to it, witnessing it, that tend to have a more deleterious effect on the kid's um, psyche than even his own physical abuse because he couldn't really do anything to intercede or when kids did, they get the shit knocked that, of them. You know, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, one thing I would say too, just backing up is a lot of people have thought who were in physically abusive homes of killing their parents. When, when I wrote my book, I interviewed many, many, many people and including, including the folks who I had represented uh, over the years. And many folks talked about killing their parents just as a fantasy. So the other thing about boys who kill their fathers, typically these cases, interestingly, really interestingly, not just boys kill their fathers, but most cases of patricide and matricide are involving middle uh, and upper middle class families. Um, the amounts of uh, the homicides uh, among teenagers are disproportionate in general of uh, people from low, uh, low economic uh, uh, status. But in patricides and matricides, adolescent homicides tend to be have a more skewed distribution to um, middle middle and upper middle class uh, communities. And um, the the other thing that occurs with boys who kill their fathers and also almost in all other patricides and matricides is the phenomenon called overkill. What that basically means is that you don't shoot the person once; you shoot them multiple times. You don't stab once; you stab multiple times. You don't just you uh, the 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 perpetrators of these uh, offenses um, uh, also don't kill when they're usually don't kill into being actively abused. The person's either sleeping um, or doing another task. And that posed for me as I began defending these cases a real issue because traditional American law or even English common law recognizes self-defense as you know, two men coming down the road and one man has a stick and the other man sees him and picks up a rock and bashes him in the head if he gets near him trying to hit him with a stick. It was a similar phenomenon that we faced in batter women's cases. Um, uh, and um, uh, you know there was a famous case back in the early 80s called the uh, burning bed of a woman in Michigan who lit her husband's bed on fire, who had been horrifically, physically abusive. And in that case, she was used at self-defense. And I then developed something called the battered child defense, which was basically looking at the long-term effects of child abuse on the psychology and the, uh, on the psychology of adolescent victims. And, um,
1: now, you, you actually note, and I'm glad you brought, brought that up because in your book, you note that there are disparities between society's reaction to survivors of domestic violence who kill their partners and children who experience similar abuse who kill their parents. Why do you think that disparity exists? Well, oh, I think
0: society has a skew towards being much more forgiving for adults and understanding for adults because in the case of battered women, uh, it's another adult you know it's, whether it's a district attorney or it's a jury they're they're judging another adult whereas in the case of a kid kids are supposed to you know literally the notion of be, being seen but not heard i mean and so i think that there's always been this this disinclination of uh not just society but the legal system in understanding the plight of and identifying with the plight of victimized children. And I think that even just bleeding over to the work I do today, it's while child sexual abuse, really until the last 20 years was not recognized, 25 years, uh, really 25 years, probably a little bit more, not recognized as the horrific problem that it truly is. Because again, you know, we think of children, you know, and today may not sound logical, but as I wrote my book, we think because children are, are little people, we view children as little people and view them as that little pain. And they, you know, this is just something that they have to deal with. And a lot of adults over generations have had to deal with physical abuse. So with the boys, the other thing too, as I say, is that it's not active abuse, there's overkill. Boys will kill their mothers, interestingly. One of the more interesting areas for me, there tends to be some sort of psychosexual abuse of the boy by the mother. Um, she dresses in a, a skimpy way around the house. She smothers the kid with control uh, under the guise of supposedly loving and caring for the son. Um, again, you have the phenomena of shooting the person when they're sleeping, etc. cetera. Um, with girls who kill their fathers almost routinely, those cases are all sexual abuse. Almost every single one. I've had, you know, cases, one of my, you know, uh, where girls are being sexually abused and they will uh, endure it for years. And then when the father is gonna turn to the, uh, their sister or they, they are starting to date boys and they realize this is wrong, um, uh, or they know it's wrong, but they realize that their distance between their emotional feelings and their, and, and their everyday lives becomes much more stark and they kill again Killing the father, not when he is sexually abusing the the, the young lady or the, or the little girl, but rather when he's sleeping or his back is turned, etc. And then the rarest form are girls who kill their mothers, and that doesn't. They're so infrequent, it's hard to say anything about it. Except those women typically who get killed by their daughters have a very similar personality to. Um, the men who get killed by their sons, that is over-controlling, not allowing the, the girls any kind of uh, freedom with dating, etc. But very extreme, I mean, chronic control.
1: Now, I want to tie some of that in because you mentioned that that we have a tendency for children to view them as little adults and to dismiss them as a society. And I think that we talk a lot in, in the Bar Association about how we don't believe children. right? Which leads me to, so in a 2007 interview with P- PBS, you expressed a very valid frustration saying that in these cases, often relatives, neighbors, and friends all said things like, oh, people have come to me over the years and said, do you know what? I knew something was wrong, but I didn't think it was my place to say. So. how often do you think this abuse is known to the general public? And what's your message to friends and family who are aware of the abuse and don't know what to do?
0: Yeah, good point. Yeah, I have, I always, I have always said, uh, after I started researching this in the first, oh, after the first seven or eight years, I came up with the idea that there's always more than one finger on the trigger, that people knew what was going on and intimate family friends and neighbors and just didn't want to do anything in fact in the case of boys who kill their father sometimes they were just scared of the father um i had a case i wrote about in my book where a kid reported his he killed both his parents and and that's kind of another area double parasites and typically it's a son who kills a father with a mother who's a sort of a compliant partner uh, if you will Um, but you know, he uh, reported his father to his teacher. His father was so abusive that he would keep a cattle, as I wrote about in the book, hung over the mantelpiece, uh, mantel place and um, he had used it so many times to, to beat the hell out of this kid that it was splintering and he held it together with duct tape. Anyway, he uh, tells his teacher, and the teacher says, "You know, your dad. By the time we report this, um, you know, we don't, we don't, we can't necessarily guarantee your safety." And she basically threw it away, uh, threw the complaint away. And so people know, um, and, and friends know. They hear screams, etc. Um, and, and it's less now because the consciousness of the country, I think, has changed. But we still, these cases still go on. Um, but I think that people do know, relatives know. And I think the message is, is, is that you have to be the voice of the kid. I mean, the kid, the reason we have mandatory reporting laws in the United States for teachers and doctors is that kids can't report on their own. We know that. That's the whole thing with sexual abuse as well in churches and schools, et cetera. We the reason they have mandatory reporters in schools is that the kid's not going to report that he's being abused by a parent or a teacher or a neighbor or Boy Scout leader or a church person. But if a teacher finds out, they're the ones that need to report. And the same thing is, while we don't have mandatory reporting for just neighbors and friends, um, in, mo- in you know the vast majority of places, you know they have people have an obligation, you know, um, I think to report when they know. And that's why we do have, you know, if you have a legitimate report uh, to CPS, uh, um, you would not be held liable. Uh, of because, uh, uh, doing it if you have a legitimate belief in it because all you need is a reasonable suspicion. So, yeah, I mean, that's one of the problems is, is I think that we what, what I've always said about the parasite cases open a window of understanding into the whole phenomenon of child abuse because you're looking at the most extreme um, horrific cases but there they give us sort of insight into the sort of the evolution of abuse and how Um, uh, not just that it has effects on the victim and the personality of the perpetrator, but as well how other people around the the child's life react. So I represented a kid named John uh, up in the Bay Area a number of years ago. Um, He was physically abused by his father. His father was known as somebody who intimidated everybody around in the neighborhood, his, when, some, when his father was reported for child abuse, he uh, went down to the Child Protective Services and threatened to blow the building up. He was just known as a, a bully in the neighborhood. One day um, after years and years and years of, uh, of just horrific physical abuse, John, uh, his father uh, went down into the basement. John was there with a gun John uh, shot him in the back of the head and then uh, uh, was became um, uh, got arrested for the crime and we went to trial on it <clears throat> and um, it was very clear in that case that many, many people knew from his mother to friends and neighbors and even social workers that this was going on and um, nobody intervened. Now, when you do, and and in this, and John was basically left with the burden of of, of doing of doing this uh, of, of doing this himself, of, um, uh, of, of of having to protect himself, and he was convicted um, of uh, voluntary manslaughter. Um, in these cases, I think over my career of the hundreds of cases I've worked on, either tried or worked with other lawyers on the, I think there's only been three or four not guilty verdicts. Um, uh, Self defense was just extremely difficult to uh, to um, to win in these cases, and you know the best victory is one where somebody gets convicted of a of a uh, of, of, uh, of manslaughter and, does, and doesn't do significant time. I had another case up in the Pacific Northwest of a young man whose mother was married to a law enforcement officer. And uh, this man was brutal in terms of his abuse. And in fact, would do something I called symbolic abuse, which I didn't talk about before. Symbolic abuse is the ability, and it happens a lot in domestic violence cases with adults where where the perpetrator shows his strength by breaking objects or undertaking certain feats to show how intimidating they can be. So this guy, what I remember one of the stories was he would turn on a ceiling fan and because of his ability, uh, martial arts, he was able to kick to the ceiling between as the blades would whirl around. And in this particular case, uh, my client, Uh, he would he would he would have my client uh this young boy who was his stepson um have to rake the you gotta notice this is up in the northwest and he would have to rake the leaves on the lawn and if he left any leaves on the lawn or it wasn't perfectly wasn't perfectly uh cleaned up he would get a punishment and this is also typical of a lot of Especially men in patricide cases, they have t- type A personalities, and they enforce really, really strict rules that are completely impossible to comply with. So one day, it's case not what happened, but there was a, there was an incident where this man came home, and he was a law enforcement officer, and my uh, uh, client um, uh, was. Uh, um ended up uh, shooting him, but he shot him once, and then the the his stepfather started chasing him. So he as he's running, he's shooting behind him and ended up killing uh, this man, his stepfather. And during the trial, um, you know we 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 showed, we had his sister testify who talked about, the brutal beatings that he took and uh, his mother who testified about the beatings that she took and the jury uh, in that case still, you know, convicted him of manslaughter and he did some time in prison. But one thing about all of my clients, not all of my clients, 98% of them is that they are, if they get sentenced to prison, they are excellent prospects for rehabilitation. And not one of them, well, strike, I would say, a couple of them have gotten into trouble for drug related issues after they if they were, they were released or they put on probation, but none of them ever got charged with any kind of violent crime afterwards. The other thing true about them is that unlike teenagers who commit homicides against strangers or gang related issues, situations, or in conjunction with a felony. These boys and girls uniformly do not have a history of antisocial uh, behavior or of adjustment disorder. Um, They tend to be average or above average students in school. They tend to have compliant personalities. So they're not they, they 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 really diverge from what the even the public and even law enforcement's conception is of somebody who commits. You have to understand a brutal lying in wait homicide, and um, so I mean that's a those are sort of two examples. I um, you know uh, uh, have other cases. I had a case in the south of a girl who uh, shot her. Uh, father and after she, after years of sexual abuse and just to show the tragedy of this case, after she shot him, she started giving him mouth to mouth resuscitation. Because one of the ironies of these cases is that while these children fear their parents, they also, it's still their parents and they love them. And um, that's the thing, no matter what their sentence is that they have to live with with the rest of their lives.
1: Talking about sentencing and defenses in these cases, self-defense is hard to prove, especially because, as you mentioned earlier, a lot of times the the act of killing is not done in tandem with acts of abuse. How have you seen defenses change that juries are willing to accept from kids in in addition to self-defense now? And have you seen sentencings change. Over yeah, the years. I mean,
0: early on, there was no understanding of what we call uh, the notion of using a heat of passion defense or imperfect self defense was not there. Now we know now things have changed. And um, we see these cases go down much more as manslaughter cases, or more so than they used to be first degree murder cases. Uh, mandatory minimums really it applies, for example, if you use a gun in California now that's twenty five year mandatory minimum. But um, in general, we've seen as the advent of a increased understanding of child abuse, um, more sentences that become more attuned to the realities of the situation and um, understanding that there are mitigating factors. and the, and the and the big case and the big issues in these cases is really, uh, ends up in sentencing where you can show that the person didn't have a history of violence that they were subjected to horrific physical abuse or sexual abuse that there was other abuse in the house etc
1: when you have these kids come to you you're just another adult who has they view it push them to the side there's a lack of trust of adults What steps do you take to get them comfortable with sharing their experience with you? And how do you consciously get them to trust you?
0: Well, this is not like a civil case. In a criminal case, if they don't open up, and and most people over the years have opened up, if they don't open up, then they're doomed. And so their, their very survival is tied inextricably to their being open. In terms of trust, you know, it's difficult to get, um, uh, you know, these people to trust um, uh, obviously, but these kids, but, you know, over the years, one of the things I think I've learned is to try to let the person know, because they haven't been believed for years that I'm here and um, you know, in order for me to help you, I need to know everything. Now, I have had cases that I've rejected because the people say I didn't do it, and I've told the family or told the lawyer that wants to bring me in, I'm not your guy. If you think that somebody didn't do it, even where there is, and that's happened me a number of times, where there's overwhelming physical evidence then you know go with that but you know I only t- I only took cases and you know when I was doing this more actively very actively where I knew the person committed the, um, the patricide and, the and it's always a big that's a big challenge obviously because you one of the things right off the bat compared to almost every other kind of criminal cases you're admitting the physical act of homicide so that's why these represented for me the highest wire act that you could walk as a lawyer because you don't have all the other defenses available. I wasn't there. Alibi. Blah blah blah. This is where you're admitting you're admitting to the physical act of taking the life, which is a homicide. And um, uh, then the question is: Is it, is it negligence? Is it, is it excusable? Is it self-defense? Etc. And so you, you know, especially when you, you know, I've represented kids who are, I think one of my youngest clients was 10 years old and uh, maybe nine, I can't remember, uh, over the years. But I know maybe 30 years ago or so, I had a case of a nine or eight or nine-year-old kid, and you know, he um was trying to protect his mother and shot his dad. And uh There, there wasn't a lot of protection, but in that case, they wanted to transfer the kid to adult court, which which is one of the big things. One of the big things that happened over the years is is not transferring these kids to adult court or keeping them in juvenile court. Because when they went to adult court, as soon as they turned, if you got convicted, as soon as you got turned 18, you 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 get put away at 14 or 15 years old, at 13 years old, you stay in the juvenile system to 18 and you get flipped into the adult system. So a big win for me over the years has been keeping a kid in the juvenile system. And that's happened, that happens from, you know, more and more. And now, you know, I don't do as many of these cases anymore because of my other work, but as well, the defense itself now is much, much, much more well-known and um, uh, and lawyers and there's a number of legislation around the country that has basically helped battered women, but also helped battered kids. I mean, the battered women thing is really interesting. So I had just the U.S. method earlier. I had a case in um, the mid-Atlantic states of a woman who, when she was 18 back in the late 1960s, or seven, no, six, 17, I'm sorry, um, with her boyfriend killed both her parents uh, who were um, extreme abuse in the house. And um, the, the governor in that state around 25 years or uh, well, more than that, like 25 years after she committed defense started allowing women and uh, some of the listeners may remember where governors started alla- hoping these clemency efforts for battered women that happen all around, all around the country. When she tried to join <laughs> the group of battered women seeking clemency, she was excluded from the group because she was a kid who killed a parent as opposed to a woman who killed her boyfriend or husband. And that was enough for me to take the case on pro bono even. Wow. Uh, just because I was outraged that she would be excluded from a group of women because the person she killed was not a spouse or a boyfriend.
1: So with all of these kids you've been able to interview over the years, What gets them into the headspace where they believe that killing their parents is their only option? And are there warning signs that these mandatory reporters can look for?
0: Um, I mean, the headspace that they kill is they feel alone, they feel isolated, they feel hopeless. They usually try, they know other people know what's happening. They see the doors shut on them, both metaphorically and physically, that people just want to ignore it, put their head in the sand and they feel isolated and helpless and they feel they have no choice but this is again with extreme abuse cases right and they feel they have no choice um, uh, uh, to do anything but um uh you know no choice to do anything but to ki- but to protect themselves they view their own lives in terms of the self-defense theory as being under attack. There's a great book by a, I believe it's a Yale Harvard psychiatrist. It's called Soul Murder. The author is a guy named Dr. Albert Schengold. And he writes about the fact that people who are horrifically abused can just have their very soul destroyed. So I've always used that as sort of a descriptor to let people know where your psychological life can be you see it hanging by a thread and for self-preservation, you know, people commit these homicides. I will say also that there are a number of patricide and matricides committed by adults. And those tend to be more related to financial gain or um, drugs. And there are cases of teenagers who kill their parents where the parents have done nothing wrong but the teenagers suffer from significant mental health problems, either schizophrenia Or um, uh, uh, some other serious, serious mental health problem, but those are the minority of cases. Though the people who kill their parents do suffer from other mental health issues, such as chronic depression, um, called dysthymia, or uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, or chronic, or chronic um, other forms of chronic uh, just chronic depression, Um, and so. uh, and it's really the PTSD part of that formula that makes people more vulnerable to, you know, being hopeless, being hyper vigilant, thinking something's going to happen to them, always being scanning the horizon to see if something's going to go wrong, right?
1: Now, a lot of your cases, and we really saw a rash of these cases in the late 80s and early 90s, probably most famously being the Menendez brothers, right. who are still in prison.
0: That's right. Where? I worked on it.
1: Where are many of your clients now and how are they doing in their healing process? Well,
0: interesting you say that because um, I represented people starting in the early 80s when they were 14 or 15 years old or 13 years old. The majority of them are out of prison now, not overwhelming majority. Some got life without parole and they have their own families. And one thing I'm actually undertaking now is going back and finding about uh, eight to 12 of them and re-interviewing them now as people in their forties and early fifties.
1: Have you stayed in touch with them as adults to know how they are doing uh, with their- probably about
0: uh, six to eight of them. Well, they've stayed in touch with me.
1: Why do you think there was such a spree in the late '80s, early '90s, of this, what triggered it, and why has it quieted down?
0: I don't think it's quieted down. I just don't think we've seen the the, the cases are still there, and I think they were just just like with battered women's cases, we still see them happening, <clears throat> but it doesn't get the attention that 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 it has gotten because I think the FBI numbers are pretty much still the same. It's just a different. Uh, I, I don't have I don't have a reason for it. I think it just got a lot more attention back then than it does now. You can still find the cases.
1: Do you think the courts and district attorneys have changed the ways in how they approach these kids? Um,
0: do I think that? Uh, yeah, I mean, as I say, with the advent of an increased consciousness and child abuse, I think that certain parts of the country have, certain states, um, but other states, you know, they have, it just depends on the... the the local district attorney, how that, how they, how how she or he has decided to look at not just these these offenses, but also battered women who kill cases. I mean, we've seen governors in many states set up these clemency boards for adult women. We haven't really seen it for, well, like in California, we have the battered women's clemency project. Well, there's no battered children's clemency project, for example. Why do you
1: think that hasn't happened?
0: Um, Why? Because the same thing we talked about at the top of the the interview. I mean, I think that there's just not the constituency for people like that.
1: What is the one thing you wish the general public understood about these cases and these children? Because I think it's unfathomable to a lot of people. Yeah,
0: I mean, I think the main thing people should understand is that these cases put up a mirror to the problem of child abuse in general. And when kids are driven to these, I want people to know these kids are not evil. They are not the worst of the worst. They are children who killed as a last desperate hope to protect themselves, by and large, not every case, but most cases. And that um, only when we started understanding that child abuse was a phenomenon, did we understand why these Offenses happened and because these cases have been going on for, for years and years and years and years um, and in, throughout all cultures in the world. Um, and uh, not just the United States, Japan, Europe, wherever, you know, all, all over the world, and so I think people should I want them to take away that there is that they should look at these cases as a, as I said before, as a window to understand how terrible. Child abuse is for, for for the victims, and that it's not just something that happens and goes away, and that the, the that the that it, it exists and will exist in these children's lives as they become adults forever. And um, it's the same reason why you know victims of sexual abuse in institutions like churches and schools, etc carry that with them for the rest of their lives. But when somebody kills somebody, um, that really shows the, kills their parent or caretaker. That shows that how serious the problem can become. And it should be a, you know, uh, a, a warning to people that don't ignore the problem. Not that most kids who abuse are going to kill, but just that the potential is there for extreme abuse, where there's extreme abuse. And the more closed the family is with this abuse, the higher the opportunity, the higher the chances that something very bad can happen.
1: Paul, I want to thank you again for joining us today and for engaging us in this amazing conversation. We benefited so much from it. And I know our listeners did as well. And just so our listeners know, we are going to drop your website and name into the show notes so that they can find out more about you.
0: And they can get, if people are interested, they can get a copy of When a Child Kills, even though it came out in 1991, it's still available on Amazon.
1: I I will tell you, yes, I looked it up on Amazon. I have ordered (laughs) my copy, so it is available.
0: Thank you, okay. (laughs)
1: Thanks, Paul. Thank you for joining us for this conversation. Again, we know the topics discussed can be difficult and may be emotionally triggering. Support is available at victimconnect.org through call, text, and chat. We encourage you to take time today to learn about your rights and options that are available to you. Building safer communities requires every one of us to take action. Visit victimsofcrime.org to learn more. This podcast was created by the National Center for Victims of Crime in partnership with our center and affiliate, the National Crime Victim Bar Association, the nation's first professional association of attorneys and expert witnesses dedicated to helping victims seek justice through the civil system. To support this podcast, please visit victimsofcrime.org. Parallel Justice is hosted by Renee Williams, written by Krista Anderson and Mariana Wells, edited by John Williams and produced by Deidre Watford.